I'm largely teetotal, so I'm not familiar with the fact that these days bottles of wine are largely opened or sealed with a screw top, particularly here in Australia. But while cork wine stoppers may be going out of fashion, the global cork industry appears to be making something of a comeback as new uses are discovered for this remarkable natural product. All will be revealed by journalist Alistair Leithhead, who for two decades covered wars in the Middle East and Africa as a foreign correspondent with the BBC, but now, perhaps rather mysteriously, he chooses to live off-grid in Portugal, where the cork oak is as central to the culture as the oak is to the English. Alistair, welcome to our little wireless show, the first of the year. So you're, I'm afraid, forgive the pun, but you're helping pop our cork. (laughs) Thank you. Can I begin by asking you a, a rather silly question? Does the cork oak tree have anything to do with the county of Cork in Ireland? Um, I absolutely no idea. Uh, I don't think so, but uh, certainly not the cork oak, because the cork oaks are found in southern Europe rather than in the west, uh, southwest coast of, uh, of Ireland. So I don't think so, but I could be uh, willing to be corrected on social media. OK, now let's go back in history. When do we first start using cork? Um, Look, cork's been around thousands of years. So the Egyptians and the Persians, that's uh, 3000 BC, 5000 years ago. uh, There's evidence that they use cork for fishing floats, um, as did uh, the Greeks and the Romans. But they also use them for shoes and for some roofing materials, the archaeologists tell us, um, and also for, um, for stoppers for um, sealing wine amphora, the clay pots that the Romans used for all sorts of things, including, of course, wine. And I understand that cork wine stoppers weren't developed until the late 1700s. Um, As things stand, I mean, that's when it really started to be um, a thing. I suppose that's the time when you started getting um, cork plantations, forests of cork, put across uh, the Iberian Peninsula, here in in Portugal and in Spain. Uh, Half the world's corks, stoppers, are produced here in Portugal, of course. And the reason for that was it was because of the glass. Glass bottles became a thing and therefore a way of stopping them nicely also became a thing. It was first used in Champagne uh, in the 1700s. Uh, that's when corks first started being using bottles like that. But really, uh, as I say, it was from then on that the cultivation began here in Portugal. I learned from you that cork has been a protected tree in Portugal since 1209. That's right. Yeah, that's uh, one of the first uh, laws protecting cork forests. And today they are <laughs> just as strict. Uh, any time that you have uh, any pruning to be done or any even dead trees to be cut down, permission has to be sought. They are Portugal's uh, protected national tree. Uh, and therefore, people are very, um, uh, very clear on what you must do. In fact, I'm sitting on our land here at the moment, uh, looking out over some of the cork oaks we've got here. Um, we want to plant a load more. Um, but we have to ask permission to plant them as well. So they're very highly regulated. On my farm, we uh, we have olive trees 
that are quite young, but of course we know that around the world olive trees can remain productive for centuries. The same is true of the cork tree. That's right. I mean, they live um, 200 years plus. Um, in fact, the oldest cork tree in the world, um, I went to go and see. It's between us here in uh, southern Portugal and Lisbon. It's called the Whistler tree <clears throat> or the Portuguese monumental oak. It's 240 years young this year. Uh, 1783 that was planted. Um, and so that's one of the great things about cork trees is that they do you know, lock away a lot of carbon um, in this time of obviously trying to reduce the carbon, tackle the issues of raise, rising CO2 levels, uh, and they sequester it. They keep it in their um, in their branches, in their in their trunks for very many years, and that's a, a real advantage for them. So when this uh, famous Whistler tree is harvested, it'll be the twenty first in its lifetime. That's right, and they'll get probably more from that than you get from uh, from most other, <laughs> other trees in the neighbourhood. It is a vast tree. It's called the Whistler because of all the birds that live in its branches. So when you stand underneath it, you have this fa fabulous uh, little orchestra playing in the branches. And it's produced enough for 100,000 cork wine stoppers, heavens above. How is cork actually harvested, Alistair? Well, this disturbed us to begin with when we first moved to this little rural corner of Portugal. When we saw between, well, it was sort of May, June time, we saw a, a group of men wielding axes running around the countryside. And this is what happens across Alentejo, this province. It's a third of Portugal. It is the, the focal point of the, uh, the growing of these trees. And these men have little fan-shaped axes, and they know exactly how hard and how deep to cut in order to, to extract the bark from the trees. So what happens is they every nine years they harvest and they hit the axe in, they make the, the mark and then they twist the axes and they use the, the handle as a lever and they prise off the planks which are then stack and move on to the next tree. It's an amazing process to watch. It's very quick, very efficient. Up ladders to get to the, the higher branches and then moving on from tree to tree to tree. It takes two years to, to learn the proper skills of doing this because if you get it wrong you can damage the tree um by digging too you know cutting too deep but if you don't cut deep enough then you don't produce good enough cork to be used for bottle stops or, or for the other uh, material uses it's, it's put to um so that's uh, that's why you have these bands of men working in the heat of the summer it's more than 40 celsius in the interior of alentejo in those months of the year it's a tough job and it's also the highest paid job in Portuguese agriculture. My guest is Alistair Leithhead, freelance journalist living off-grid in Portugal and formerly a foreign correspondent with the BBC. Now, I expressed mild astonishment in introducing you that, uh, you know, cork is becoming unfashionable in wine, but surely it must still have a huge market. It does. And look, uh, they, um, we went to see the biggest cork producing uh, manufacturers in uh, in the world. And they're up in near Porto here in Portugal. Uh, and they described an existential crisis that the cork industry went through in the early 2000s. So then you had the arrival of plastic corks, aluminium screw tops, and this whole thing that you're never going to have a tainted, you know, cork taint bottle of wine again, something that's been corked 
if you have plastic or aluminium. Obviously, plastic has quickly um, had a U-turn against it. So plastic corks are no longer popular, um, given um, efforts to try and reduce plastic use. Aluminium screw tops, still very useful. But the great thing about cork is that although it doesn't let any water or air in, it does have air in its microscopic pores. And that goes into the wine. So the first few years that uh, a wine is in the bottle with, with a cork in it, it does have some oxidation. It, it does improve, mature the wine. So cork has that benefit. The big negative, of course, of cork is this thing corking. It comes from a, a chemical called trichloroanisole. Um, it, it, it's, a, it's a fungus gets into the cork and that makes the, um, the wine taste a bit like cardboard. And it's very, very sensitive, the human nose and taste buds to this. One drop of this um, chlorotrolloanisole into 100 swimming pools, that is the amount that the human nose can pick up. So it's a big problem. And so what the cork industry did in the 2000s when they were facing this crisis uh, was to throw money at research, try and improve this and try and get rid of this problem. And so using a technology, uh, supercritical fluid technology, they call it. I didn't quite understand it when the man explained it to me. But basically, it's, what, it's the same thing that decaffeinates coffee. So it's a way of cleaning corks thoroughly so you don't have this taint. And that way, they're saying that, you know, you can trust cork. You're not going to have spoiled wine. And so that's how they're fighting back against the, uh, the aluminium tops. In introducing you, I hinted that uh, all sorts of remarkable new jobs are being found for cork. Let's reveal some of them. Well, look, cork is light. It's durable. As I said, it's impermeable. It's pretty elastic and it's fire resistant. We realised that when we had a huge fire came through our valley uh, just um, a few months ago, actually. It's all back to being green now, thankfully. But the cork trees were black. Uh, they looked they were dead. But they're now, I'm looking at them, they've all got these beautiful green shoots. They're very good at resisting heat and fire. And for that reason, the nose cone of space rockets. So the Artemis rocket program at the moment, the space shuttle for many uh, years, of course, had cork in the nose cone. Also, people will think, well, there's flooring or, or wall insulation, putting cork in, into walls. That is a very good use for them. It's very good insulating material. It's good at um, insulating for sound and for heat as well. Um, they'll be using it uh, in granule form as uh, an alternative to plastics in artificial football fields. Um, sports arenas where people will play. Um, they use cork for bridge expansion joints. Um, they even, in the factories in Porto, burn the, the dust, what's left, the stuff that's just going to be thrown onto a heap. They burn it and use it for energy. They produce about 60% of their power through through doing this. And they've also got these, um, this, this factory we went to, they've got this thing called the I-Cork unit. It's basically a group of young material scientists who've been given cork and whatever other kinds of biopolymers they can get their hands on to try and come up with new materials. And they've actually developed an injection molding cork that can be used like you use like aluminium foils around wine. They can actually mold cork like that. They're changing the properties of cork in order to use more of it. Um, using aircraft interiors for helping electric cars to support and, and stop the heat from their batteries. There's, there's so many but that, uses. that leads me to inquire whether the, you can make cork artificially. Um, well, um, you, you can't. It's a natural material, but it can be recycled. Um, so they often will granulate it. When you actually cut corks from a, um, a plank, it's not sort of 
poking inwards to the tree. It's in the sort of the, the width of the, uh, of the plank. So those are the very best corks. And then everything that's left over, like a sheet with lots of holes in, that's granulated, a different size of granules, and then used in so many different ways to compress it into cheaper corks, ones that are made of compressed granules. So there's lots of uses. The key thing to all this, so I think really, is the, the value that cork has for carbon capture. Because there's all the forests, all the trees that are being planted to try and soak up the, the carbon and to kind of sequester it. The cork trees, because they're the only commercial forestry that isn't cut down when it's harvested. And this is going back to how many hundreds of years that these trees can last for. And that's a great way of um, increasing the carbon storage to the extent that the uh, the cork lobby, which is, of course, very strong, claims that um, if you drink more wine with cork stoppers, you can actually save the planet. Although I think that's a little bit of a stretch. Uh, it's hard to put an exact figure on, on carbon capture, let's say. Um, but they've been doing some scientific research and they say that, um, that 73 tonnes of carbon dioxide is captured per tonne of cork. That's 392 grams per individual cork stopper. Um, so it's a remarkable material, uh, particularly when you know efforts being made to try and lock away carbon and to, and to help tackle climate change. I heard a sharp intake of air around Australia when you talked about NASA nose cones, but it's also uh -huh. used in electric cars. That's right, yeah. It's like, well, the batteries are very heavy and they get hot, so it prevents um, the uh, vibration. Uh, and it also prevents them from overheating. It, it sort of soaks in the heat. So, yeah, they use them in um, also in cars, replacing traditional seats with lighter seats made from cork. Of course, if you've got electric cars, you want to reduce the amount of uh, of weight in the vehicle, and that's a way it's being used as well. So there's vast uh, vast ways that they're now using uh, using cork injection injection molding. That to me was like, how do you injection mold like make stuff out of cork in that way? But by blending it with the offcuts of flip flops. Um, that's what they're doing. You talked about the uh, the fires that, uh, you know, affected your regions. They're all too familiar, of course, from in Australia. And these are often, of course, intensified by orders of magnitude by climate change. Does that threaten the cork industry? It does. I mean, the cork trees, like anything, I mean, they are fire resistant. Um, and the Montado style of forest where they grow here in Alentejo is this amazing mixed forest which supports wild boar and deer, allows cattle pasture to be um, run at the same time as, as harvesting the cork once a year. Um, but they are threatened by climate change because of drought mainly. Um, and if uh, areas aren't cleared properly, then obviously the wildfires become more intense. Uh, it's a wonderful man-made, hundreds of years old, of course, system. But it does work very well at the moment. Um, as weather patterns change, though, it's going to allow other diseases to, to attack moths, beetles, weevils, the kinds of things that burrow into bark and can bring bacteria and fungi with them. And cork oaks do suffer a bit from that. Our trees are suffering a bit from that at the moment. So we've been having to look after them. And thankfully, had a load of rain in December. So uh, they're looking a lot healthier than they were. Alistair, given the new uses, any chance of a cork shortage? Um, only in the fact that it's so popular, um, <laughs> they, they need to grow more. And the problem is that you plant a cork tree uh, and it's 25 years before you can take the first cork from that tree. And that cork is not very good. It's not worth much, the virgin cork. Then you have to wait another nine years to take the next layer. And that also 
isn't really good enough for proper corks. Only the third harvest, so 43 years after planting, is when you actually get really good corks. So it's a really big investment for people to start planting cork oaks now with an expected uh, return in 43 years' time. But um, hopefully people will continue to do it. We'll certainly continue to do it. We're not expecting to harvest anything from the ones we plant this spring. But um, maybe we'll harvest some of the trees we've got here. Or maybe we'll just leave them because having the cork on them really brought them through the fire. And it's something to, to really think about. It opens our eyes to the way that, that cork is such a remarkable thing. I've just got time to ask you a personal question. From the BBC to a, uh, well, to living off-grid in Portugal, Why? <laughs> Why not? <laughs> Approaching 50 after bouncing around the world, covering lots of different wars and finally having a, a home rather than living um, this uh, lifestyle of bouncing from country to country every few years. My wife's Portuguese and Swedish. I'm British. We had three easy countries to choose from. And actually, when we came to this part of Portugal and wandered around, we thought this has got to be the place for us. The view is as far as I can see to the high mountains. It's January. It's in the, in the northern hemisphere. It's bright sunshine, although it's a bit chilly. And it's a wonderful place to be. If only we'd asked a bit more about the whole living off the grid thing and making our own power and water, we would probably have had an easier last couple of years. But we're on track now, I think. <laughs> well, you sound so happy. I think you should pop a bottle of champers. I've been talking to journalist Alistair Leithhead. As you have you heard, a former war correspondent with the Beeb, now living very happily off-grid in Portugal. And you can read a, a lot more about his new home on his blog, which is called Off-Grid and Ignorant in Portugal. Getting in touch with ABC RN is easy. Join the conversation live using the ABC Listen app's call and text features.